Uh, there was a book released in the early 2000s uh, by, uh, by the title, They Like Jesus But Not the Church. Uh, it was a study on people, I think, my age and younger, I suppose, and the consensus was that Jesus as a figure was compelling, but church, the church that bears his name wasn't, at least for a lot of people uh, in the North American population my age and younger. And uh, as the stats seem to bear out, the church in North America is less and less likely to be something any random person will associate with. And so what I would offer this morning is that, the, that both for the Christian, the follower of Jesus, and, and the non-follower of Jesus alike, there is a complex relationship with this thing we call the church. Um, the fact that you're either here or watching this from home says that whatever complications there are for that relationship, there is some opening in your own heart to this, this reality. And that says something. Um, no matter how tenuous your relationship with this thing called the church is, it said something. Um, St. Augustine is famously, uh, has been famously attributed with the saying, the church is a whore, but she's my mother. Now, it's debatable as to whether or not he actually said that. At best, I've been able to find a sermon uh, where he said something very much like it, but not exactly that way. He uses that kind of imagery, though, to describe the waywardness of Jesus' followers, of God's people, at the same time elevating God's generous grace to the church uh, as he makes it beautiful and wholesome, even though it is often wayward. Uh, The problem we face is that church is full of people. Last time I checked, people have problems. People are problems at times. Uh, And people are full of imperfection, always in process, always on the way. And and yet, the ancient roots of this this thing tell us that the church is not really something we outgrow. It's not really antiquated because it continues to be a growing force, particularly in the global south, where uh, I think within the next 15 to 20 years, uh, the estimation is that the, the largest population of Christian people will be on the continent of Africa and then South America right behind it, as well as Asia. And so it is not uh, a shrinking faith, it's a growing faith, but the center has shifted from a European Western center to a global Southern center. But the reality is that there's this ongoing existence of the church, like And the ongoing existence of the church, with all its imperfection, with all its waywardness and and tendencies to to be unfaithful, as Augustine pointed out, uh, its ongoing existence tells us of, I think, the extreme nature of God's grace. Uh, The the grace of God is woven into the fabric of something that is often broken. Uh, Because here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about Jesus, and we have no business talking about Jesus. Like, if you think about it, right? Like, what, what are we doing here? Still talking about Jesus, still gathering together. Uh, there's something about God at work in this very broken thing. Cyprian, another North African pastor in the early uh, church, uh, remarked that uh, one who does not have the church as their mother does not have God as their father. He was saying, essentially, that There is an inseparable relationship for every believer between 
God and his people, the church. So wherever you come from, whatever the complications you might have in your relationship to church, whether it's a miracle that you're engaging at all today because your experience has been so bad, or if the church has been a haven for your soul that's kept you on the planet, uh, the reality is that the church often fails to be what it is in practice. But that failure to be who the church is meant to be, does never, it never nullifies or erases God's grace. And it doesn't nullify or erase God's very presence and commitment and purpose with the church. Think about it in terms of uh, an experience in a relationship. Um, I, I said, I do, in front of God and witnesses to my wife, Lauren, 14 years ago, and we entered a covenant relationship. We entered into something bigger than ourselves, bigger than our feelings, right? So we said, yes, we have these feelings, but we're making this kind of commitment. We're entering something that's bigger than us. It's an institution, a covenant. And sometimes, well, let me put it this way. I'm never not a husband. I'm always related as a husband. Uh, And sometimes I'm a really good husband. And sometimes I'm a pretty selfish husband. But there's a grace in the relationship, in this covenant arrangement that keeps us coming to each other and working on the things that hurts the other. And there's this grace in our relationship that it's bigger than us, and it's bigger than our failures, our our relationship is. Uh, Our relationship's bigger than how we're performing, all right? Uh, it's, It's all woven into this covenant relationship. Now, I don't stay a husband based on my moment-to-moment performance. It's not like, well, I'm not a husband right now because I'm not looking like a great husband. It's like, you're always a husband or a wife in a marriage because there's a covenant that, that declares you to be that, that holds you in that place no matter what your performance is. Though we treat each other perhaps on moment by moment ways that might be damaging or healing, the reality is we're in this thing that's bigger than us. And so it is with the church. I think that's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says this, that there is this mystery. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis chapter 1, and he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There's this mystery of God's relating to his people that's on the level of a kind of covenant relationship between a husband and wife. It actually sets the category for what husbands and wives are supposed to be like. And so for these seven weeks, this week included, leading up to Advent, uh, we're going to be looking at this idea of the people of God. Like, what's God up to with this thing we call the church? What is it, in essence? What does God say about it? And if those things are true, then how does that shape how we live? And so uh, our experience tells us uh, perhaps something quite different than the images God uses. But uh, what I want to do in this series is to try to get us on the inside of those images, to try to get us on the images that are on the pages of Scripture, and if they are true than to bear them out in how we live, to see what changes that makes for us. And so to get us started, I want to play with this idea of an image, an image. 
the Bible uses pretty powerful images when it talks about the people of God or the church. Uh, people of God, family, that's an image that is used for the church. Body, the body of Christ, ongoing physical manifestation of Jesus' own person. Like when Saul is persecuting Christians before he becomes Paul, Jesus confronts him on that road to Damascus, you remember, in Acts chapter 9. And, and he, who, who's Saul killing? Followers of Jesus, right? Because Jesus has been crucified and raised and ascended. And then he confronts Paul. He meets him and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting these people who love me? No, that's not what he says. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus identified so closely to his church that to persecute his church is to persecute his very person. That's how intimately connected Jesus is to this thing, this people of God. And so we have these images, body, bride of Christ, the beloved, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at these images, and yet the reality is we also have an image that we've gained from our experience, that we project on what the church is. When we think of church, when we, we have an image that we project based on our own experience. And so I want to hold those two things in tension for a minute. Uh, there's this famous painting by Van Gogh, the uh, Dutch artist. He painted it in his final year of life before um, he took his own life. And it's called the church at, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, Auver, I think is how it's pronounced. Uh, if I'm wrong, please correct me in between gatherings. But it's this town north of Paris. And uh, anybody seen this before, this, this painting? It's at the, uh, the Muse d'Orsay in, in Paris. And it's uh, this old converted uh, train station that is this beautiful art museum, and, and so it's there, and um, and it's quite a statement on what he saw when he projected his feelings about the church. Uh, he had a very complicated relationship with church because he had aimed to be a, a, a pastor, actually, and he wasn't actually ever allowed or permitted, I guess, to, to enter into uh, vocational ministry. And so this was a work of art that seemed to project some of his own feelings. <clears throat> and I wonder, you know, uh, how, how many people might feel similarly as they look at church. Uh, what, what, what do you notice? Do you, do you notice it's hard on this screen to notice the lighting, but uh, the painting itself, the light isn't coming from in the church. It's all around the church itself is darkened in its lighting, which is pretty interesting. Uh, and so the light is not uh, coming, coming out in any way. It's like darker inside than outside. Uh, also, there's paths that go by. Uh, and actually, if you look at the pictures of this actual church, there are these paths that go by. But it, notice that from Van Gogh's perspective, there are no entrances. There's no way in. There's no accessibility to whatever's happening in the church. And so there's this woman walking past, seemingly without any ability or desire to connect with what's inside. I think this is a pretty profound image, perhaps a, a, a summary image for the way you have felt or 
maybe even still feel, or your friends perhaps feel. No sense of accessibility, no way in, seemingly more light outside than in. And as you look at that image, how does it make you feel? Perhaps you feel seen. Perhaps it's like, ha, ah, somebody else has depicted my disappointment. Or perhaps it causes you grief and sadness for the ways that the church has not been the light of the world, has not been the way open to those who are least, last, and lost. Or maybe you feel nothing because, in fact, your experience with church is so disconnected. Perhaps it's just already still such a foreign concept that there isn't much to draw on emotionally. And that's okay. But let me suggest this, though, that whatever your experience is as it relates to the church, it's a shaping thing. And so as we talk about church for the next six weeks after today, I want you to pay attention to what shaped you, because it's important. Uh, it, it has impact. Few things are as impacting as the way that those in spiritual authority behave towards us. As we said last week in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a, a very clear statement that reveals how much uh, he understands that religion is often a hiding place for predators. And, uh, and so when you've been hurt by those who represent God, uh, there are few wounds as deep as that. <clears throat> And at the same time, when you've witnessed some community or some person, some man or woman or relationship or family or whole church body acting in self-sacrifice, it's profoundly impacting and inspiring and healing. And so as we work through this People of God series, I would invite and encourage you to do some work with Jesus in the days in between our gatherings, uh, that you would actually try as best as possible to identify the moments and events that have set a course for how you relate to this thing called church, to try to name them before God, identifying those experiences. Uh, because theology no matter how clear and compelling it is, has a way of bouncing off of our defenses, uh, particularly when we've not attended to the emotional stuff of our hearts. The emotional stuff of our hearts keeps coming to the conversation, and it's often a silent conversation partner that often prevents us from moving forward and learning new ways of relating to something until we've dealt with them. And so my encouragement would be to do that work this week, to name and identify shaping experiences as it relates to the church. And the extra credit would be, honestly, to name and identify that in conversation with another, whether it's a spouse, a friend, somebody in your community, to spend an hour and say, these are the things that have impacted me. Here's my story. And I want to be open so that God can continue to work in my life and shape me beyond the experiences I've had. Now, my own story has had a variety of powerful and profound experiences, profound experiences of rich community and deep pain, like brilliant intimacy and profound loneliness. I've experienced healing in the church and betrayal in the church. 
Uh, the first real emotional imprint of what the church was for me in my life and God's grace happened to be in a context of being a child in a season where my family was struggling and fighting to stay together. And we hadn't been a part of a church community until th that family, the nuclear family was starting to fray. And in the midst of that, what I witnessed was that the church was this place where God redeemed and healed broken things. And I watched God put my family back together in the context of a little local church. And that stayed with me. That's impacting. It stayed with me because it was a moment where the church was acting like itself. And there are always moments where the church acts like itself, and there's moments where the church acts like anything but itself. And those moments can stay too. And therefore, it's important to know and name them as what they are. I've often said, don't reject Jesus based on a poor representation of Jesus. If you're going to reject Jesus, let's be very, very clear about who it is we're rejecting. Don't reject the wrong Jesus. If you're going to reject him, reject him for who he is, not who he isn't. And so therefore, I would say the same about the church. We have to be very careful not to distance ourselves from something that doesn't honor Jesus. We want, or sorry, I said that backwards, I think. We want... Uh, to be very careful about mistaking Jesus' followers behaving badly for what Jesus actually wants in the world. And so here's why this dynamic is so important. We've, we've talked about images. We all have an image of what the church is. Something has shaped us, and we need to know and name it. Um, but the idea I want to put before us here today is that the church is also meant to image. It's actually meant to be an image. It's meant to depict and display and image God. And, th and that's why it's so important. It's so powerful. And so where, where do we even begin our journey into, as Michael said, big word, ecclesiology? It's just, just the study of the church. Ecclesia, or ecclesia is a Greek word for, that we get for church. It's assembly, called out ones. It's, uh, it's all it is. And so ecclesiology is the study of the ecclesia, the, the church. And so um, where do we begin this exploration of the people of God? Well, best usually to start at the beginning. Uh, what is God up to when he makes humans? Let's take a look at Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make Adam, human, in our image after our likeness. And let them, humanity, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created Adam, man, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there's an interplay between the one Humanity as one and humanity as different. One and many. See the interplay? Let's create a human, and that means man and woman. Okay. So the human is the image of God, according to Genesis. Uh, we could hang out there for a long time, but let's just grab this point from the author of Genesis. He's saying that the human 
is the image of God. They image God. They make the invisible God visible. That's the, the essence of a human. Uh, the contrast, by, way, uh, or by the way, in the ancient Near East is fascinating uh, because it, it, there, in other cultures' origin stories, the image of God might be a king, a royal figure, but not everybody else. It might, might relate to uh, an ethnic group, like our ethnic group is, uh, has been made by our God, but those other ethnic groups, are, their origin stories are, are, are much... Uh, much less dignified than our own. And by contrast, the biblical vision for humanity is not that one class, rich, poor, weak, powerful, not one ethnic group, but all people are the image of God. That all humanity shares a common origin story, a royal origin story. There's an elevated special status to every human, no matter their ethnicity, Right? Not, this is not about the color of skin. All colors, all ethnic groups, all share this elevated status. This is going to be very important to the biblical narrative. Um, again, the biggest issue in the New Testament church on repeat is how do Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles are non-Jews, so every other ethnic group besides Jews, how do those parties relate? Right? As we looked at like last, this last summer and like our history, we have to understand that like tension between ethnic groups has been around for a very, very long time, and the gospel has an unlock for how we relate as one while retaining difference and respecting it and also being one. We'll come to that later. But the image is this idea of, um, it's actually the word you get for idol, selim in Hebrew. It's this, uh, the creation narrative is God coming into his temple to inhabit and fill the world, and he puts his image there. Just like in every other temple, you have an idol of that deity. Well, who's the idol of Yahweh, the God who created and redeemed humanity? It's the human. The human is the physical representation of what God's about. That's what happens. And so God gives a job description. Go rule. There's a royal image. Go rule. And so he delegates authority to the humans. And he says, go do the kind of stuff I would do with the stuff I give you everywhere you go. Go be fruitful and multiply and take care of this world. And so it's this priestly royal job description to go and rule and to make the invisible God visible. And that always involves a community element. There's no way out of it. It's not an individual job description for any one person. It involves oneness and diversity. It's a communal task. And so the image of God is always uh, about persons in relationship, one and many. The next story in Genesis 2 has the human, uh, at this point, just the dude alone looking for a partner. Right? And, and so there's a whole bunch of really cool stuff going on there that the author of Genesis is doing. But what happens is he realizes, I can't human alone. I can't properly image God by myself. It doesn't work. God says there's one not good thing in creation, and that's that this person's alone. Not good, by the way, doesn't mean evil. It just means doesn't work. It's non-functional. And so uh, from the side of the man, God fashions a woman, right? Uh, and it's this cool partnership that God fashions. 
And so from one comes many who will then become one again, one flesh in a covenant relationship of marriage. They'll be one. Now, if you know the rest of the Bible story, the thing God's up to in the very first two chapters of Genesis is he's showing you where the whole story is going to go. He's showing you that there will be a problem with humans who won't be able to relate in unity. They won't connect as one. In their manyness, they'll do violence to each other and increase in violence upon the world for the next uh, nine chapters of the story. And humanity will become more and more and more fractured. And ultimately, God, though, will reunite or unite humans again. But uh, he'll do it with all their otherness, Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, weak, powerful, and he'll unite them through another marriage union where there will be a groom, a bridegroom, who will unite humanity with all their otherness, and they'll partner with that bridegroom slash king in reigning and ruling and imaging God as he was meant to be imaged, all with the help of the Holy Spirit, who gave life to the first humans and will give new life to a new humanity who are united with Jesus the Messiah. The whole Bible story is going to be a picture of God reuniting humanity through this one and a marriage. And so that whole Bible story also shows the problem. The reason humans don't image right is because they turn to false images. They look outward away from God to other gods whether it be to nationalistic idolatry, to violent self-assertion, to unjust aims that are selfish, to exploiting rather than serving the creation as vice regents, and so on. And so God will have to fashion a new humanity from the true image of God, the one Paul calls the second Adam, that is Jesus, the one who is everything humans were meant to be. And Jesus will come and image God perfectly. This is what we see all throughout the New Testament. That In John 5, Jesus says, I just do whatever I see the Father doing and nothing else. That's his gig. He just images perfectly. The author of Hebrews says in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is the exact representation of God. John 14, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus images God in his perfection. And so this whole idea of imaging what God is like, well, it's always a partial thing for humans until it's final and complete in Jesus. The one who does what we cannot do for ourselves and who redeems a people and makes a new creation in himself so that we can image properly in relationship to him and union with him with the help of his spirit. And so therefore the church, as Jesus' people, are caught up in this story of representing, of imaging God before the world because God is this one and three He's, as we confessed in the creed, he's triune. That means he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. And the only way you can image a God like that and represent him to the world is as a community. It's not an individual sport. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, God shows himself by sharing his very self with a people who are called to represent him and make him visible to the world. Um, we get one of the most clear glimpses of this calling of the church to represent an image, God, in John 17, where Jesus is praying uh, right before he's arrested, right before he 
will ultimately go on trial and give his life. Here's what Jesus says in his prayer in John 17. So when Jesus finished speaking these words, the upper room discourse in John 14 through 16, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is? It's that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And so Jesus had shared glory with God. He's equal to God in relationship with God. And so that relationship is is part of God's essence, God's self-giving, loving relationship. What's the essence of God? It's a self-giving, loving relationship. And all this means that the Father has eternally been stoked on the Son, and the Son has been eternally stoked on the Father and the Spirit. They're always sharing this complete love back and forth. And, and, And God created not because he needed creatures to say, hey, you're awesome. Uh, He didn't need creation to fill a void in himself. No. Uh, He created in order to share out of his overflow. And so Jesus says, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now uh, they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they believe that you sent me. So Jesus has imaged. He's made God's nature manifest. The watching world has seen what God's like in Jesus. And then he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. What does that mean to be kept in his name? It means to keep, name is, is equal to God's nature. Keep them like yourself, which is what? One, even as we are one. Jesus' followers are brought into the party of God's likeness, and they represent him through their oneness. Why? Verse 15, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. No, just that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. So sanctify them, set them apart, clean them up in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So he says, I don't want them out of the world. I want them in the world. I just want them to withstand the evil one. And Jesus prays for his followers, and he's still praying for his followers. And he says that they need to listen to his word and that they're on a mission. He says, just like the Father sent me, so I'm sending them. They're sent. And so the church always gets corrupted when it lives for itself, like it thinks that it's the purpose. No, the church is always sent for the sake of the world. It's sent for others. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 12, Jesus suffered outside the city gate beyond, uh, and he says, to make the people of God holy by his blood. And he says, so let us go to him outside the camp. The idea here is that Jesus uh, is found out there in the place of rejection, that Jesus' people are to follow him where he goes. He went out to save sinners and to bring them back as children. And so the Christian life is joining in Jesus, going where he was sent and representing him there. That's why Jesus says in Acts 1, you are my witnesses. 
In other words, it's not, uh, please be my witnesses. He says, you are. Just by the nature of your relationship with me, you represent. The question is always a question of accuracy. Am I representing accurately or poorly? Am I imaging well? Jesus then goes on and says, I do not ask for these only. I also ask for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you've sent me. The glory that you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them. What does Jesus say is the way the world gets to look in and go, that's what God's like. Oh, he loves us. It's when they look at his church being perfectly one. It's interesting that, (laughs) you know, uh, the only thing that we can do that's of any persuasive effectiveness to the watching world is one of the things we're the worst at. Isn't that interesting? And yet we have the potential to be. The resources are there. And so we are to image God. We're to image him. That's the mission. Go and be representatives. Image and depict what he's like. Uh, There's speaking of an image. Uh, we need to land this plane. Sorry. Um, let, me, let me put up another painting. Um, I want to leave us with another picture. It's a classic icon by a Russian painter named Andrei Rublev. Have you seen this before? Okay. Well, uh, I don't know what you notice. Uh, it's supposed to depict the three visitors to Abraham in Genesis 18, but it's a Trinitarian depiction. Uh, each head is bent towards the other. Each one is, is bent in love and deference to the other, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But notice that there's space at the table. There's room. There's room for you and I to join the feast, if you will. There's an open seat for the world to enter into this icon of God's Trinitarian life. Let me suggest as we begin this series, sorry, we've just been deeply dense in the middle of John 17. All of that is to say, look, there is the one who is the true image, Jesus Christ. And he's invited you and invited me into this feast of God's love and generous joy. Let me suggest that this morning, as we begin this series, that it's very easy to just be a critic. And we can look at back on our experience and go, the church is, well, it's, it's a whole lot of things. But it's far more enjoyable and difficult to create something, to enter something, to participate in something, And that's what we're called to, aided by the Word and Spirit to create a community that represents God in all of His oneness and manyness, His three and oneness. And so what's the image this morning that you are representing? You can't be one with those you're not connected to, and you can't be one with those you don't love. And the reality is we all do what's been done to us. And so the church gets to represent Jesus because the church gets to experience Jesus. Um, the only way our oneness will be on display is by receiving it. The only way to image well 
is to behold the one who is the true image, which is what we do at the table. We come to the table week in and week out to celebrate God's invitation to each of us and to the rest of the world to be one with him. And, and, and the final image I'll put up this morning, the art for the series, it is descriptive. It shows us something about what God has done for each of us. It's this kind of this Japanese art that takes broken pottery and binds it together with this melted gold. And it's like really beautiful. And Jesus himself became broken, entered our brokenness and was raised glorious so that he could take each of our broken selves and lives and knit us together as this united, beautiful depiction of his grace in his hands. So come to the table this morning to receive the bread and cup that grounds us in this story of invitation to image and represent well. Let's pray. God of grace, we pray that you would take the words that you want us to have remembered this morning and let them sink home for us. The things that are useless help us to forget, but the things that are of you, would you help us to just absorb and hold on to this mission to represent you to the world. And the means is through union with you. So we come to the table to celebrate that union, that oneness that you have secured for us by your body and blood.